This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com Parents and children, we find there's a dichotomy, as always, in terms of anything in the Torah. There's good and there's bad in everything. And also, we know that in our relationship with God, there's an element of love and there's an element of fear. Or should I say an element of awe? There's a relationship, in, a, in any relationship, there's, there's always at least two different parts to it. One is an element of getting closer, one is an element of drawing away. And this is true in any relationship. And this is also true in the relationship of a child to parents, which unfortunately is not so well known. Most people, when they think about children, all they think about is loving one's child. The Torah actually gives responsibilities to the children towards their parents and not the parents to the children. It's very interesting. Why is that? And we find that the Torah does not speak of cases where it assumes things are always good. The Torah always talks of cases where the opposite is usually true. In other words, cases a person through their own judgment would never think of. That's what the Torah speaks about. Let me give you an example. The Torah does not talk about a woman's responsibilities to her husband. But the Torah talks about a man's responsibilities to his wife. Why is that? So the rabbis say because it's the man who usually abuses. It's not the woman that abuses the man. It's usually the man that abuses the woman. And therefore, the Torah has to explicitly talk to the man. The Torah, when it talks about man and his children, doesn't really address the parents. It's more addressing the children. Because the Torah assumes normal parents, hopefully, Jewish parents especially, will love their children and give their children and nurture their children and do whatever they want for their children. But what's not so true is, what's the child's response to the parents? So the Torah says two things. We know number one is the fifth commandment, of the Ten Commandments, is honor your father and mother. Honor your father and mother. We find it's the child's responsibility to honor his parents. Later on, the Bible tells us, it says, You will fear your mother and your father. So there's a dichotomy over here. One is honoring, the other one is respect. Honor goes hand in hand with respect. The Talmud asks, What is honor? So Talmud says, To feed and clothe one's parents and provide them with their basic necessities. So in other words, the parents are poor, the child is wealthy. The child grows up. The mitzvah of honoring one's parents does not apply only when a person is a child. Normally you think, you know, the child's got to honor his parents. But this mitzvah continues when a person is an adult, and that's when it gets hard. When a person is a child, okay, the parent's much bigger. Okay, I can imagine. You have to honor your parents. When a person gets to my age or whatever, and you have to honor your parents, that's much harder. Because we're nearly the same age. I mean, we're, we're adults. We're <laughs> it's very hard. So honoring parents is when the children can't afford, they have to honor their parents. They have to provide for them. The parents are in need. The child has to provide for their parents. The second side of the dichotomy is a person must fear or respect their parents. How does a person respect their parents? The Talmud says a person is not allowed to sit where the parent normally sits. Because if there's a chair in the house where a person's parent normally sits on, a person shouldn't sit on the chair. A person should stand up when their parent walks in. I mean, who today does that? I mean, 
We have no concept what it's like to respect people today. Just, it's one of the American things, you're all equal. It's true, we are all equal. We have to realize, we have to appreciate who did so much for us. So the Torah is telling the child, appreciate your parent. Appreciate what your parent did for you for so many years. And the truth is, a person does not appreciate until they themselves have to change diapers. And they themselves have to stay up at night. And they themselves have to lift and hold the baby, go cry. And they themselves have to put the child through school. Then they really appreciate, hopefully. Now I remember what it's like. Imagine, my parents did this for me? So the Bible tells us, who is the person likely to abuse the relationship? It's interesting. The Bible assumes the parents are not going to abuse the child. Today, we're getting to the system where you know, we have to talk about parent, parental abuse as well. The Bible is assuming that the child is going to abuse his parents. It's a very strange sort of assumption. We have to legislate. The Torah legislates for the child. The Torah does not legislate so much for the parent. So it's the child's responsibility. The child has to honor their parents, provide for the parents. The child has to respect his parents. The child has to show respect. And uh, there's a beautiful story, it says. There's a famous rabbi in Israel who used to be a comedian, a stand-up comic. And Uri Zohar, his name is Uri Zohar, a very famous comedian in uh, Israel who eventually became religious. And uh, people thought that was part of his act. So they, said, they saw him on the stage with the yarmulke, they started laughing. <laughs> He's making a mockery of the, of the religious Jews. And then they, when they realized that he became one, the smile was wiped off their faces. <laughs> they stopped laughing. It's not funny anymore. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting. So he started becoming more observant. So he had a discussion with a rabbi one day. And the rabbi said, if I persuade you there is a God, what would you do? Would you change? He said, I don't know. I'm not prepared to change. <laughs> one second. So what's the point of arguing? Here he is. He would go to argue. What's the point of arguing if you're not going to change? So then he had to come think about it for three weeks. Then he came back and said, okay, now I'm prepared to argue. Otherwise, what's the point of arguing? It was just a futile theoretical argument. So the rabbi said, don't waste my time. If you, I can persuade you there's a God, what would you do? Would you change? It took him three weeks to admit. He was an honest person. He's an honest individual. So later on, becoming more observant, and uh, he had a child. So eventually they persuaded him, put the child in a religious school. Put your child in yeshiva. So he puts his child in yeshiva. He says, I'll try it out for two weeks. Let's see what happens. The child comes back after a few days. And Uri Zohar is walking into the kitchen. The child is sitting down having some food. Sees his father walking in, stands up. So Uri Zohar, okay. Walks outside again. Child sits down. Walks back in. Child stands up. Goes outside. Comes back in. Child stands up. He said, why are you standing up for? He said, Daddy, he says, I'm giving you honor. When he heard that, he says, that's it. He was sold. He said, no one ever gave me honor before in my life. <laughs> my own son has given me honor. Wow, what a great system. The Torah says, we have to honor our parents. This is something which, unfortunately today, is falling by the wayside. It's a terrible thing. We need to learn these values again. It's the fifth commandment, which means it's one of the basic building blocks of society. It's a tremendously big building block of society. And that's something which today is a problem. Is so many family units are falling apart. Why are family units falling apart? Because people don't know what it is to honor. And people don't know what it is to respect. And in any relationship, as we teach a child, if you, a child can honor and respect his parents, 
then he can go on, grow up, and honor and respect his wife or spouse. And then he can grow up, and then he can hopefully honor and respect God. But if a child is not taught at an early age to honor and respect, the child doesn't know how to honor and respect. The child won't grow up with these concepts of honoring and respecting. So that's the responsibilities of a child and the parent. What is the responsibilities of the parent to the child? Obviously, support. To raise the child in a wholesome atmosphere. And to educate the child. Now this is a very revolutionary concept. Because only up to about 100 years ago, there, were no, there was no compulsory education. Think about it. It's mind-boggling. Judaism says the world is 5,762 years old. And the scientists say it's billions. But the oldest, according to man, we have the oldest calendar in the world. Judaism has the older calendar. It's older than the Chinese calendar, which is the other older calendar. It's at least 2,000 years older than the Chinese calendar. No one else has an older calendar than Jews. In those 5,762 years, only the last century has modern society stated that a child needs compulsory education. Only the last century. 100 years ago or so. Maybe no more now. So we're now in the 21st century. Towards the middle of the 19th century in England, they passed a law, compulsory education. That's it. What happened before that? Children grew up wild. You want to educate them? That's your business. Most people in the world did not know how to read and write. It's very hard to understand. There's only one exception in the whole world. One people in the world taught their children to read and write. No one knows this. It's a big secret. Only the Jews had compulsory education. The rabbis enforced compulsory education 2,000 years ago. But the truth is it was made before that. The commentaries tell us King Hezekiah, in his time, he said the, the children of the generation knew more than the rabbis today. That's how much they knew. The rabbis today were, uh, were, like, were small compared to the children of those generations. They knew much more than we do. He enforced strict laws of education. Education is a value. Where do we see that education is a value? We find we're just reading the, the Torah portions of the week, just starting right again from Genesis. Every year we go, we read the whole five books of the Torah, we dance, and then we start again. We're going through the whole process again. Every year we go through the whole process again. Why? Education. The person thinks, I've read the book once. The person says, you know what? Read it a couple of times. How many times should I read it? Try reading it once a year. Once a year. And split it up into parts. This way you can digest it properly. And this way, after a year, you know something. Second year, you go through it, you learn more new things. Third year, more new things. And it's continuous. A person should learn more new things every year. Every year, I, need, I learn more new things. There's more, I see more things in, inside the Torah. And it's very beautiful how deep it goes. It just keeps on going deeper and deeper. So we just discussed Adam and Eve, who had two sons. Then later on, they had one more. But they started off with two, who happened to be twins. Cain and Abel. What happens? Cain kills his brother. It's, what is the Torah telling us over here? This is a terrible tragedy. It's a holocaust. Why is it a holocaust? A quarter of the world population was wiped out. Who wiped him out? His own brother. Fratricide. Right at the beginning of time. 
you're thinking it's a pristine world. There's enough room for everyone. What's the problem? Parents creating the image of God. What happened over here? It seems that one brother couldn't control himself and got angry and upset. And a fit of rage kills his brother, which is very common to be angry and upset. We may not go that far, but we all get angry and upset. We have to learn from this lesson, number one, to control ourselves. But who's going to teach us this lesson? Who's going to teach the kid a lesson? It's the parent's responsibility. Straight away we find the parents failed the responsibilities. Adam and Eve did not teach their children how to behave. What happens? Cain has a son. What does he call his son? Do you know? Cain's son. Hanoch. Right. No, H-A-N-O-C-H. Hanoch. Oh, Enoch. Oh, it's a total distortion. But it's Hanoch. That's an English translation. So his name is Hanoch with an H. Hanoch. That's a good question. So Rashi says... Very good. Excellent. Good question. Have a look for homework at Rashi. Oh, wait. Let me just tell you. Make it easy for you. Rashi says the answer over there. He says that when everyone was born, when they were born, they were born with twins. Twin sisters. He married his own sister. In certain situations where there's no one else allowed, when there's no one else around, incest is allowed when there's no one else around. When there's no one else in the world, there's just a person and his twin sister. The overriding factor is to develop the world. God wants us to make the world continue. That was the only case where it was allowed. Those were the first cases. And in fact, the Midrash says that was one of the big reasons for the fight. Because Cain had one sister and Abel had two sisters. So the fight was over how many wives they're going to have. But that's, there's many different commentaries. As you read it, it gets deeper and deeper, and there's more commentaries. But let's try and find out what the moral behind it is. Because there's a lot of symbolism, and there's a lot of morality, and there's a lot of ethics in this story. And unfortunately, most people just read it, and they see it as bedtime stories. There's a lot of morals behind it. What is the Torah telling us? This is the Word of God. What is God telling us? The first man and the first woman were the worst parents. They didn't devote themselves to their children. Why? They did not dedicate themselves to their children. They didn't educate their children. Cain killed his brother. They failed his parents. What happens? Cain has a child after this episode. He calls his son Hanoch, which means education. Hanoch, education. He realizes the big mistake of his parents. Calls his son Hanoch. And the Bible continues. It says, and he builds a city for his son. And what does he name the name of the city? The same as the name of his son. Hanoch. He calls his son education. What's your name? Education. And I'm going to build a city for my son. And what I'm going to name the city? I'm going to name my city Hanoch. What does that mean? Education. Education lives in education. Cain says, this is the breakdown. My parents did not teach me. I regret it. I'm not going to make the same mistake with my child. I'm going to remind my child to educate his children. Why? I'm going to build a city called education. That is the main main thing. So the parents' responsibilities are, besides the physical responsibilities, which unfortunately we are all too much emphasized today. There are other responsibilities as well. Responsibilities of transferring morality and ethics. And 
a sense of awe and a sense of honor and a sense of love to the children. And it's very hard. And the children pick it up from the house. The atmosphere in the house is very, very important. And what pervades the atmosphere in the house? The parents do. But if the parents are just watching TV all day, or they don't even see their kids all day, then they get it from the kids learn what they learn from the TV, which is very unfortunate. So chinuch, education is number one. The parent's responsibility to the child. Where does the Bible talk about this? We say it every day in the Shema, twice a day. The Jews should say the Shema in the morning and in the evening. The rabbis came and they said, twice in the morning and twice in the evening. One in the evening prayers and one before going to sleep. And what do we say in the Shema? You will teach your children to speak in it. The parents' responsibility to teach their children the Torah. Which unfortunately, again, many, many parents are failing their responsibilities. We have to teach our children the Torah. What does that mean? We have to teach them the values and the ethics of the Torah. Because otherwise, they're not going to know what Judaism stands for. There's many Jews today who don't know what Judaism is all about. A lot of people today think Judaism is bagels and lox and cream cheese. And fundraising. You get a call from the Federation once a, week, once a year. Can you pay the money? Yeah, okay, that's it. It's a checkbook and bagels and lox. And that's what Judaism, Judaism has become. And if you're lucky, a bit of Israel thrown in. But that's it. But it's not. Judaism is the mother religion of two massive religions. It's interesting. There are only 12 million or so Jews in the world. I was reading my son's history book. It was a beautiful social studies book. And it says over there, Judaism is one of the major religions. One second. Only 12 million people. There are more people in Madagascar. I'm sure you've never heard of it. Than in the whole Jewish religion. We're a major religion. We're one of the major religions. What does it mean a major religion? It means the influence of Judaism is disproportionately strong than its numbers. The country Israel should never be been heard of even. It's four million people. There are more people living in New Jersey than in the whole of Israel. And yet Israel is on the front page every single day over and over again. There's something going on which we have to teach our children because the children are going to come to us and say, Daddy, why do people hate the Jews so much? Why Jews news? Why is Israel always in the news? And we, we won't know the answer. We, don't, we won't know the answer. So we have to learn what our heritage is all about. We have to teach our children. It's parents' responsibility teach their children. And this is uh, um, a mitzvah which we find. Who was the first Jew? Who was the first Jew? Abraham. Abraham. The truth is, you're right and wrong. <laughs> Why? You're right because Abraham is our forefather. And he's our first forefather. Well, we acknowledge our forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are our forefathers. Was he a Jew in the classical sense? And the answer is no. There was no Judaism at that time. When did Judaism really start? When the Torah was given. Even Moses wasn't Jewish. Till the Torah was given. When the Torah was given, all the Jews converted to Judaism. Before that, they were the children of Israel. After that, they became the Jews. What do you mean Jews? Really, the word Jews is a misnomer. It's really named after the word Judah, because there's one tribe which survived through the centuries. So we became known as Jews because we're the children of Judah. The religion, per se, of Judaism came when the Torah was given. Prior to the Torah being given, there were no Jews. There was no Torah. What defines a Jew? What is a Jew? The Torah defines who a Jew is. If there's no Torah, there's no Jews. Everyone converted together at Mount Sinai. We all became Jewish together. 
Abraham classically was not a Jew, but you're right. He was the first of our ancestors. So we call him the first Jew, but the truth is, ask that question. It's a trick question. Ask your friends. Who was the first Jew? The truth is, there was no one first Jew. They were all Jews first. All the Jews became Jews together. Abraham was our forefather, but not the first Jew. Anyway, why is Abraham chosen to start God's people? Why did God choose Abraham? Why didn't God choose Adam? Why didn't God choose Cain? Why didn't God choose Noah? Why does God choose Abraham? Any ideas? Why does God choose Abraham? So one of the most common answers, let me give you a common answer. A common answer is, Abraham chose God. So God says, you chose me, I'm going to reciprocate. You choose me, I'll choose you. What better person? You're the one looking for me. There's only very few people looking for God in the world. Abraham was one of the few people looking for God, probably the only one looking. And he came from a very bad family. We say this in the Haggadah. What do we say in the Haggadah? We want to sit around the Pesach table and we chat. And we, what, what does the book say? What does it, we say in the book? What does it say in the book about Abraham? Of the Avodah Zarah Hayu Avotenu. Our forefathers were idol worshippers, pagans. Terach Avi Abraham. Terach, the father of Abraham, was an idol worshipper. Not only was an idol worshipper, the Midrash says that he made them. them. Not only did he make them, but he sold sold them. them. He had a good business, a flourishing business. Why not? I mean, his forefather of the Jews, he's a businessman. (laughs) We're all all descended from businessmen. (laughs) But he's a businessman. What was he doing? He was buying and selling idols. Businessman. Big businessman. Best business. Why? People want gods. They want to feel secure. Every time something goes wrong, they find another god. Maybe I didn't get the right one. So that's another one. That's another one. We have no idea what it's like, paganism. If you go to Israel, you have to go to the Hebrew Museum, the Israel Museum, and you see the pagan worship of the Canaanites. They have a little idols. They, each one has an idol. And you see the idol, the Lord of the Flies. Little flies they would make and attach to their clothes. They would worship them. They, these things are going to protect them. So that was the father of Abraham. Abraham wakes up to the realization, impossible. There must be something greater. He compares it to, if you find a beautiful palace in the middle of the desert, and it's well lit, and there are clothes, and there is a, there's a table laid of food, the person comes on and says, you know what, all this is an accident. Evolution. I don't believe that anyone built it. It evolved. Abraham said, impossible. There must be a maker of this palace. This world is a palace. And today we can see much more than Abraham. Today we know exactly how intricate this world is. It's tremendously intricate. It's impossible just to happen by chance. And any mathematician who is truthful will tell you the probabilities of this world just happening are so remote. So, so. Arthur C. Clarke, one of the great science fiction writers, he investigated, he says, the chance, how, what's the chances of billions and billions of apes sitting at billions and billions of typewriters producing one work of Shakespeare? said the likelihood is they're going to run out of paper. There's not enough paper for them. They'll never produce one work of Shakespeare. So how can you say this whole world, this magnificent world, with all the different intricate forms and life forms and other things, came about just like that? Or evolved over a period of time. It's impossible. Mathematical chances of happening. And the scientists today do admit that. The good scientists. And even the top uh, cosmologist, Hawkins, Anthony Hawkins, now he says there is a power. There is a power. Now, after all these years, did Teshuva, and he says, now, there must be a power. It's impossible. This structure is so possible. 
Yes. Yes, he finally reached some kind of conclusion that there is something beyond because it's impossible for this world to come about. Otherwise, impossible. So it's, I mean, science is getting very close. 40% of scientists do believe in God now. Nature, science magazine, nature magazine. 40% of scientists do believe in God. That's a high number. So it's a very large proportion. It's much more than what it was before. And they come around to this idea. The only ones holding out are the biologists. Biologists, why? Because everything is cells. Well, the difference between a human being and a frog, there's no difference. If you talk to biologists, there's no difference between a frog or a human being. There's no difference between a fish and a human being. All cells and cells are cells, and that's it. They look under the microscope, that's all they know. So everything's a cell. So you have one cell or 50 cells, cells are cells, that's it. That's all they know. So the biologists and everyone's holding out. The cosmologists, majority, vast majority, believe that there is a God. But that was Abraham came to this conclusion. But why did God pick Abraham? So most people think because, as I said, he picked God. God reciprocates. That is not really a good answer. There's another answer. Maybe it's because Abraham was the kindest man around. If you needed a favor, who would you go to? Good man, Abraham. If you needed food to eat, where would you go? You go to Abraham's tent. If you need a glass of water, where do you go? You go to Abraham. Abraham supplied the world. Puts up tents in the middle of the desert, digs wells. If you're thirsty, hungry, come to me. I got food for you. Abraham was the kindest man. Maybe that's why God chose Abraham. God Himself says why He chose Abraham. He says because He teaches His children after Him. Tzedakah, righteousness, and mishpat, and justice. He's the only one in the whole world since the beginning of time who teaches His children after Him. I'm choosing Abraham. Why? Because there are other great people in the world who recognize me. There was Methuselah, who was the longest living man in the world. 969 years, not bad. 969 years, the Bible says. There was Enoch, Hanoch, the other Hanoch, who walked with God and was no more. He was beamed up alive, like in Star Trek. He just beamed him up. God beamed him up. He didn't die. There was Noah, who was a Sadiq, a righteous individual. Why didn't God choose them? The answer is they didn't teach their children. What? Two things. Tzedakah, righteousness, which is charity and giving and kindness, and mishpat and justice. That is the keys. Those are the main things which we have a responsibility to teach our children. That's what the Torah encompasses. What the Torah encompasses? Two things. Righteousness and justice. But Abraham, even before a Bible, even before having a written code, had an idea what God was all about. And he transmitted the values, what he thought God was all about. And they're right. He was right. These two things. He was the first one to transmit these values to his children. God says, you're the guy I'm going to pick. Why? Because not only do you know me, but you're teaching others about me. You're teaching your children about me. There's a continuity over here. I'm going to pick you and your children after you because there's continuity. The other big righteous individuals are just a flash in the pan and they died out. You're the first one who try to achieve continuity, I'm going to choose you. So we see the education is so important that God chooses people based on the values they transmit. A person could be a righteous individual who didn't transmit values. Flash in the pan. Right? We all have these inspirations, what we do about them. We don't pass them down. Who are the greats? The greats were the ones who, ins- who were inspired, invented, and passed it down to others. But the guy who just... You know, I heard a beautiful story. It's, uh, there's a rabbi who wrote a book. 
So another rabbi calls him up. He says, you know what? I could have written a book as good as yours, if not better than yours. If I would have had the idea, if only I would have, I should have, and I could have, I would have done it. So the rabbi wrote the book, says, how sad. Those are the saddest three words. I could have, I would have, and I should have. He said, do it. So, practical, being practical. Abraham had the idea, but he's the only one who did it, who practiced it and passed it down to the next generation. There are other people who had the ideas, but they never passed it down. So it's very, very important to pass down, transmit, transmit values. Be a transmitter. You know, in a car you have a transmission. What does a transmission do? Shifts gears. Very good. Why? It takes the power of the engine and transmits it to the wheels. Right? You have no transmission. The engine's working, but the wheels don't go. Why not? There's nothing to transmit the power to the wheels. Abraham was a good transmitter. He took the power of God and transmitted it to the future generations. That's what education is all about. That's what we have to do with our children. So, number one, the children have responsibilities to their parents. But you know what? The parents can't teach them that. A parent cannot tell his children, Hey! You have to honor me. <laughs> I demand it. You have to honor me. Why? Because the child says, power play. Right? Parrot is full of ego. It's a power play. It has to come from a third party. It has to come from the school. But you know what? Which public school in the world teaches the children? You have to honor your parents. You have to show them respect. Only the yeshivas do. Kid comes home. Can you imagine what it's like? He says, comes home. He says, Daddy, can I get you a glass of water? Can I do anything for you, Daddy? You know what it's like? It's a fantastic feeling. It's a good feeling. It's worth all the tuition. Pay the tuition. It's a fortune. You get it, you get it back. Somehow you get it back. The kid stands up for you. gives you honor. Where do you get that in the world? Where today do you get kids honoring their parents? It's a fantastic system. On the other side, the parents have to transmit values to the children. Right? The worst thing is, it's like a garden. You planted these beautiful plants. What happens? You don't care for the garden. Weeds. Wild. Everything grows wild. A person who plants as a child. King Solomon says having children is like planting a garden. He compares it to planting. And that's why we have so many children, because King Solomon says, he says, when you plant in the morning, don't stop. Plant in the evening as well. You don't know which plant is going to grow better. <laughs> it's like an insurance policy. Keep planting. You don't know which child. Who knows what's going to happen with the children, this one, that one. Yes. Writers wrote the story, and he says there was a, a child growing up in the house, living with his parents and his grandparents, and the grandparents were treated very badly. He saw his father treat his parents, the father's parents were treated very badly. So one of the child was carving a bowl out of wood. So the father walks in. Says, yeah, you're carving a bowl out of wood. Yeah, very rough, very ugly-looking bowl. He said, is that for your grandfather? He said, no, Daddy. He says, when you grow up, I'm going to give it to you. So because he got the values from his father. So that's the values we transmit. It's very important. So we are walking examples for our, for our children. As I said once before, when a, when a parent is around, they've got to realize it's as if they're on the stage. In the, in the children's eyes, the parents are on the stage all the time. 24 hours a day. 
and the children are watching with big eyes at the performance of the parents. It's true. The, parents, the children walk in, see the parents arguing and fighting. Wow. That's how you behave. That's how you're meant to behave when you get married. <laughs> so that's a big role model. We don't realize we're role models for our children. Anyway, let's, let's talk about how to, how to educate children, how to convey values. And the main way is, as we said, role model. The main way is to be a role model and children not only see but they sense. They have a sixth sense. They can tell even without seeing. How much feeling does a parent have? A parent's doing a good deed. Is he doing it because he wants to do it? Is he doing it because he's forced to do it? Is he, he doesn't really want to do it. People are forcing him to do it. Uh, number two, to link historical accounts to something practical. And Judaism is an amazing religion. Why? Because we always have practical examples. For example, our forefathers came out of Egypt. How many years ago was it? 3,200 years ago. We celebrate it. How? We have some symbols on the table. We have the matzah they ate. The child can eat it. It's a historical thing which happened 3,200 years ago. We're reenacting it. And the child is feeling and tasting the same things. There's maror because it's bitter. He tastes bitterness. All these things are for the children. To taste it, to feel it, to touch it. By the way, it's modern educational methods. Um, I just started a school in, in North Jersey, and we're starting from little children. And the educational director, that's her favorite thing, is see the child, tell a child about a tree, and take a child outside. Let him touch a tree and see a tree and feel a tree, then know what a tree is. You tell a child to draw an apple. He doesn't know what an apple is. Give the child the apple in front of him. Let him touch the apple, smell the apple, taste the apple. He'll know what an apple is. Same thing in Judaism. We have to live Judaism. How do we live Judaism? Taste it, touch it, feel it. There's a museum in Philadelphia. My kids, when they were young, that was their favorite museum. It's called the Please Touch Museum. It's right near the Franklin Institute. If you have little kids, grandchildren, whatever, that's the best place to take them. Why? They love it. Why? Because they can touch and play with every exhibit. It's not behind a glass. It's right there. You can go on a bus. You can touch the seats. You can touch the steering wheel. Kids love it. It's please touch. So it's very important. That's number two is to link historical events to actual things. To actually go through them. This is what we ate. Our forefathers ate this. And this is our tradition. And this is make it life. Make it life. Number three. We find there's a word in Hebrew for feelings. What is the word in Hebrew for feelings? Regesh. Regesh means feelings. But if you take the letters, you can build the word gesher, which means a bridge. Regesh, what is the bridge between people? The emotional attachment between them. The feelings between them. That's a bridge between people. If there's no feelings between people, there's no bridge between them. There's no commonality. You have to find, you have to, you have to create a bond between them. How do you create a bond? Feelings between them. Feelings of the electricity between the people. So feelings. How do you transmit the vitality of Judaism? So what we do is, thank God for this, otherwise I would never see my kids. <laughs> Friday night, come home, everyone comes home. There's good food, there's songs, you sit around the table, the whole family is sitting there. And the feelings are there. Feelings of warmth, feelings of joy, feelings of relaxation, feelings of what do you do, catching up with each other. It's something, unfortunately, which today's society doesn't have. Why? Because this one's doing this, and this one's doing this, and this one's doing that. Everyone's busy with their own thing. This one's on the internet, this one's on the TV, this one's on shopping, and this one's this, and then we don't see each other. The average spouse, we're going to talk about spouses later on, 
talk about daily topics to each other 27 minutes a week, three minutes a day. That's the average statistics. And that's why so many marriages fall apart. We don't see each other, basically. We grow up in different worlds. People grow up in their businesses. People grow up in their place of work. They come home, they're exhausted, see a bit of TV, and they go to sleep, and they have no time for each other. That's not a home. So at least, thank God for Shabbat, we have some time. If it wasn't for Shabbat, we had no time, completely. You know, it's a beautiful story, it's a beautiful joke. It says, uh, there's an old Jewish woman who sold a rabbi, and she says, so Rabbi, my last will and testament is, um, I want to be cremated. He says, what? Cremated? That's not a Jewish thing to do. You're not allowed to be cremated in Jewish law. He says, no, Rabbi, I want to be cremated. And, very important, I want you to scatter my ashes over Macy's. <laughs> says, what? You want to be cremated and your ashes scattered over Macy's? Say, yes. Why? Because I want my daughter to visit me once a week. <laughs> so that's the tragedy of our time is people, they go and they go, where are they? In the malls, there, there's no time for each other. We don't see each other. People see the mall more than they see their own parents. It's unfortunate. It's tragic. So we have to transmit. How do we transmit the heritage? Gesher is regesh, feelings. Children can feel. Number four. Torah tells us an amazing thing. You will tell stories to your children and your grandchildren. Usually children, children love being told stories. And these stories last them a lifetime. Kids when they're, you know, when they're little babies. Tell me a story. Daddy, tell me a story. Mommy, tell me a story. Usually mommy and daddy have no time. Grandpa, grandma, tell me a story. Read me a story. The stories you tell children remain with them all their lives. If the silly nursery rhymes, it remains with them all their lives. If the stories of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which has no moral and no nothing, it's a crazy story, it stays with them all their life. The stories we teach our children remain with them all their lives. A very powerful tool to get through morals and ethics. So the stories we should be telling our children are Bible stories. Why? The first book of the Bible is tremendous. Why? It has so much morals in it. There's so much failure, human failings. And if we can tell our children, you know, Cain killed his brother. Look, at, look what hatred and jealousy does to a person. It can ruin families. It can break families. And the story is repeated over. Joseph and his brothers, Esau and Jacob, all these stories are repeated over. And they can be used as vehicles. All these stories are vehicles to transmit a moral message. Abraham's relationship with his wife. Abraham's relationship with God. All these are personal relationships which are so beautiful and so simple. That we can tell our children. Talk about Adam and Eve and how they failed in their mission. God told them one thing. Just one law they had. That's it. They couldn't keep one law. It was too much for them. One law was too much. So we can teach by telling stories, which are very effective. Not only that, but hearing music. Children love to sing songs. Children will learn a song more than they learn anything else. In fact, you know, the Torah was used to be, a lot of it used to be oral law. The Mishnah and the Talmud used to be oral. How would they learn the Mishnah and the Talmud? By putting it to a tune and singing it. So the rabbis would sing music and singing because a person can remember a song many times more than a person can remember just words. You tell someone a story, but then you have a little song with it. So the child remembers the song all his life. I don't know, like we remember all the stupid nursery rhymes we learned when we were kids. 
really silly things. Amazing. I mean, just can't imagine what we. Yes. Right? Uncle Moishi and the Mitzvah Man. It's a tape. You can buy a tape. Uncle Moishi and the Mitzvah Man. It's fantastic. Because they transmit values and morals by stories and song. Basically, that's what it is. And you can go pick it up in the Jewish bookstore. Uncle Moishi. I saw Uncle Moishi and the Mitzvah Man. Here it is. You better tape. Give it to your grandchildren. Music and song. But there's a moral behind it. They learn. They learn. They learn ethics. They learn morality. That's the way of transmitting heritage is through stories. Number five. Teach by forming good habits. The habits we learn when we're young stay with us the rest of our lives. The good habits, they last. It's so hard to break a bad habit. The Vulna Gaon, who's a genius, he said it's easier to learn the whole Talmud than change one habit. We know how hard it is to learn the whole Talmud. We learn a page a day, it takes seven years. If you learn a page a day of Talmud. It's very hard to learn a page a day. Um, but it takes seven years but he says it's easier to, cha- to learn the whole Talmud than change one habit so all the habits we have a person has good habits it's very important children have to be given good habits and taught good habits that's very very important number six it's very very important to teach belief in God at a young age how does a person teach belief in God very easy Switch off the lights, dark, night. Child is scared. Daddy, I'm scared. Mommy, I'm scared. It's dark. Don't worry. God is watching you. God is right with you. King David says, he says, in Psalm 23, which everyone learns Psalm 23. You go to any church in this area, any, they're all saying Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, because you are with me. His father taught him at an early age, don't be scared, you're alone. You're facing enemies. There's lions. He was a shepherd. The little kid is a shepherd. A wolf comes, lions come, everything comes at night. Don't worry. God is with you. I can teach deep belief in God at an early age. The statistics are, again, amazing statistics. Most people don't question the beliefs they absorbed when they were kids. And even later on in life. Whatever they got when they're kids, they don't think about it again. They either believe in God or not by the age of 10. It's very hard to change them afterwards. They already adopted their belief system. Think about it. They're raised on, raised on belief, person believes. Person not raised on belief, doesn't believe. Okay, there's different variations. Obviously, there's, there's a general rule. But most majority of people don't even think about their beliefs. They have no time to think about beliefs. <laughs> They're busy in Macy's shopping. <laughs> hey, they believe. Okay. I do believe or I don't believe. It's very simple. 80% of Americans believe in God. For all the Western civilizations, more than Europe. Why do more Americans believe in God than others? And one of the reasons they give is because there's no state religion. But there's a state religion, people rebel. So it's human nature. But there's no state religion, people believe in God. Look at, look at the, all the signs up all over the... God bless America. God bless America. God, where's God? On the, look on the coins. God bless America. Right? God is there. It's one of the fundamentals of this country. It's amazing. The belief in God is there. And that's the person who's going to transmit at a very early age. It's amazing. And we as Jews, we're the ones who, who gave the world this, this idea of one God. We have to do it even more than anyone else. Okay? We can't fail our children. We have to transmit belief. So it's very, very important to teach a child this phrase of King David. They walk through the valley of shadow of death. Don't fear. God is with you. 
That is with person. It's very boring. It's very comforting. Person's in alone, and there's this, and not only that, but they did medical research today. And they took people in the heart surgery ward, and they said the people who pray survive. The statistics are much better. They have less complications. And they uh, come out of surgery quicker, and they revitalize quicker. It's belief in God. Why? There's someone to turn to. The person doesn't feel alone. Even when they're alone, they don't feel alone. They talk. Who are they talking to? Talking to God. <laughs> God is talking to them. So that's very important. And number eight. Sorry, number seven. Each child is an individual. No two children should be brought up the same. Unless they have the same... Every single child is different. It's like you give a diamond to a polisher, diamond polisher. You go to Ramat Gan over there. And uh, in Ramat Gan, they have the Diamond Institute over there. They have the Bursa over the diamonds. And they're the best diamond polishers in the world, the Israelis. They go there, two diamonds. say, well, first I've got to look at the diamond. How do I cut it? Which shape do I cut it in? Each diamond is different. Each diamond has flaws. The flaws are this way, you can't cut it in a certain way. Flaws are that way, you have to cut it differently. Every child is a diamond. Every child is a precious child. Every child is special. Every child needs their own unique way of education. King Solomon says, this is about 3,000 years old, Hanoch et anar al pidarko. Teach a child according to his way. Every child is different. Everyone, no two children are alike. I have children who have gone to three different schools. One went here, one went there, one went there. Child's different. You can't, you can't send them all to one school. And they all turn out different. We all know. We're brothers and sisters, we're not, we're not the same. We're different. This one likes math. This one likes physics. This one likes science. This one likes some biology. This one, everyone's different. We're all, we're all different. You can't just come on and say, I got five kids. They, I want them all to come out just like this. That's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> you can't do that. Everyone is different. So a person's got to know that education should fit like a glove. It's like cutting a diamond. Every diamond is unique. And number eight, if you said a person's got to teach their child belief in God, but you've got to also teach a child that God is their best friend. You know, one of the problems we have is we don't, we don't stress enough that God loves us. We don't stress enough how much God loves us. And if God is our celestial parent, only a parent knows how much they love their children. I mean, you can imagine a celestial parent, God loves us much more than we could ever imagine. We have no idea. And uh, this is a very important point. And sometimes we see things happening to us. We don't understand. God loves us. This is the way we get treated. So there's a beautiful story I read. There's a book in, uh, for children, a very beautiful book. It's written by children. It's written, it started written in Hebrew. It was Israeli children wrote books about their own experiences. It's books by children for children. It's amazing. These stories where little kids write their stories and they send it to this editor who puts them all in a book. Kids speak. Excellent. Get hold of it. There's like five volumes now. My kid keeps on reading them. <laughs> five volumes. Kids speak. It's an amazing book. And uh, I was just reading a story there. It's interesting stories. It's good for us as well. Adults can read as well. So you see, from a kid's perspective, we forget what it's like to be a kid. An adult forgets what it was like growing up. And then we read this, you see what it's like again. Small things which in kids' eyes are amplified many times over. So here's a kid who's six years old and he has a lazy eye. No one knew about it. He goes for an eye test in school. He can't see with one eye. 
can't read the words on the thing. One eye. He goes to the doctor. The doctor says, you're blind in one eye. He's got a lazy eye. Never use this eye. He has to patch his good eye. Patch the good eye. The kid says, you're crazy, doctor. I can't see at all. Sorry. You've got to patch this eye 24 hours a day for seven weeks. The kid says, I'm not going to do it. Rips off the patch. The father turns cruel. You have to wear this patch at all things. You have to wear the patch. He tries to bribe him, everything. kid says, leave me alone. You're torturing me. It's torture. But the kid doesn't realize that it's for the kid's own good. And same thing. God has his own ways. We have to realize everything is for our own good. We don't realize it. And when a kid's going through that kind of experience, only seven weeks later when he, t- he can see with that eye, and he realizes, thank God for that. The only way the father could persuade his child is amazing. He took him to another man who was blind in one eye. And that man hated his parents for not patching his eye. Because he took off his patch. He says, I blame my parents. They should have forced me to put a patch. He tells the kid that. Kid's hearing. I blame my parents because they didn't force me to patch my eye. They were too gentle on me. So we see over there the concept of sometimes you love someone. You know, we don't, we don't see it today. We think, you know, it's cruelty. The biggest cruelty is Parents watching their child, taking their first steps and falling down. So the parent says, you know what? I'm not going to let the child walk. It's too painful. Gets up, falls down. Gets up, falls down. Don't let him walk. What's going to happen? That child is going to be a cripple all his life. So we see there's a concept over here, and love has limits. Kindness has a limit. Otherwise, it's not kindness anymore. because cruelty. Kindness to the nth degree is cruelty. Where do we see this? Just give your kid candies over and over. How many candies he wants? And then watch him squirm in the dentist chair. That's cruelty. Like too much kindness. Too much love can spoil a child. So we're going to teach a child God loves us. But it's love with a balance. It's a balanced love. And number nine, we go to the foundation of all education must be honoring parents. Honor, parents need to demand honor and respect. And uh, the truth is, that we said the parents can't do this themselves. They've got to go through a third party. Go through the rabbi, go through the teacher. It's got to be through a third party. And to, to do that, we have to earn honor and respect. When the, when, when the children see their parents, the child sees his parents swearing. What does the child think of his parents? They're low quality, low class. It's a low class. A child sees his parents a robber and a cheat and a crook. Oh, a kind of... What kind of example is that? We have to say good examples. We have to earn someone's honor and respect. Honor and respect have to be earned. And uh, lastly, let me just finish off. We find that uh, the Mishnah tells us there are four obligations of parents to their children. This is not mentioned in the Torah explicitly. The Torah just says, Velimantem, you'll teach. What is it? Number one, the Talmud says, teach a trade to your children. If you don't teach a trade, trade to your children, they're going to become robbers and cheats. Very important. We have to teach a trade to our children. Okay, that's good. Most Jews today do that. We want our children to be professionals, doctors, lawyers, this, accountants. Teach them Torah because you have a trade. A trade is like a, a vessel. The vessel's got to be full of spirituality and good things. Fill it up with spirituality. Teach them Torah. Number three, the parents' responsibility to make sure their children are married. If the parents don't make sure their children are married, they fail their children. And unfortunately, a lot of parents today are failing. Number four, the Rambam adds, teach your child how to swim. (laughs) 
Why? In those days especially, the boats were not very safe. You never know, the guy needs to cross a stream or a river, whatever it is, then how to swim. Boat capsized. Very, very. There were bridges. The bridges weren't very safe either. But I think today we could apply this Rambam in a different way. Teach your child how to swim means teach your child how to survive in society as a Jew. Teach him how to swim. As a Jew, we need to go against currents. We're surrounded by all different value systems and currents in the world. Teach your child how to swim. How do we do this? And uh, we found the foundation. We found that education. I like to compare education to cooking. We all like to cook, or at least we like to eat. So it's like cooking. You find in Jewish law, there's laws of kashrut. Cooking. Torah says you can't cook meat and milk together. The Torah says if you have a meat knife and you cut cheese, that knife has got to be kosher now. You've got to boil it in water. Why? Because the, it's a meat knife and the cheese goes into the pores of the knife. When you pressure the cheese, it goes in. And uh, there's another way of transmitting flavors, which is through something sharp. If you cut an onion with a knife, and then you, it's a meaty knife, you cut the onion, and then you cut the cheese, more flavor goes in. Because the sharp flavor pushes things in. You find there's three ways of transmitting flavors. One way is through pressure. So what happens if you transmit through pressure? What happens? The rabbis say, all you have to do is scrape a very thin layer off the knife. You take a bit of uh, an abrasive and uh, just scrub the knife ten times. It's kosher. Why? Pressure just pushes in a very thin layer. Number two is through something sharp. How much flavor goes in? It goes in the thickness of one's thumb. Okay. But through cooking, how much flavor goes in? It penetrates the whole article. You find, let's apply that to education. Pressure. You got to do it. You better do this. Pressure. How much goes in? To layer. You educate a kid with pressure. How much goes in? That was the old system. Didn't work. Pressure doesn't work. Only a little thin layer goes in. You put a bit of flavor, add a bit of spice. A bit more goes in. If you cook a child, you've got to cook him. What's he co- How do you cook a child? <laughs> you cook a child. It's got to be a 24-hour-a-day process. The school is a bit of flavor. He goes in, he comes out again. But the house, where does he live? He's in the house the rest of the day. It's got to be a 24-hour system. Cooking is a 24-hour. Enveloped with sights and sounds and, and uh, music and all sorts of things. That's a total system. That's the only way a person is going to transmit values. And that's something which... Today we're just waking up. Today there are foundations, all the big foundations, all the big rich Jewish guys are now investing their money in Jewish education. They want to start schools. There are foundations to start Jewish schools. They just woke up. Without Jewish schools in America, Judaism, gone. Gone, dissolved. Why? There's no method of transmitting values. We have to educate. Okay, so that's, that's the topic is uh, relationship between fathers and uh, parents and children. And next week we're going to talk about um, in-laws and outlaws. Okay, we'll, we'll stop here. Thank you for coming. Bring your friends next week.
You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.